Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. Yeah. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. Yeah. This song don't give a damn. Yeah. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant. If you don't try and buy it, or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. I ain't mad at evolution. For revolution, get up. Enough is enough. Hey, somebody stand up. Come on, get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. All right, so we're live. We're getting um, some interesting feedback here that Karen doesn't have an Instagram. Shock horror. But that's not the, the the point of today's little talk. Uh, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm back again with Dr. Mickey Willardin and Dr. Dan Plews, and we're joined today by Dr. Karen Zinn. Uh, all of this crew have done a, a fair amount of research in low-carb low carb diets and nutrition, have a lot of experience practically in that field. And so today we were going to have a little chat about low carb and hormone balance uh, overall and for a few specific outcomes, because that seems to be a very common topic at the moment in the um, sort of, what's that? Hot topic. It's a hot topic. Yeah. It's a common topic. It's a hot topic. It's all those things. So I'll open up um, maybe to each of you. What are some of the theories that you've heard about low carb and hormone balance overall? Maybe start with you, Karen. Um, I guess, um, I mean, I've been doing low carb now for about seven, eight years or so. And um, to be fair, I've been doing it from a practical perspective. I've been doing it in um, in a similar way with males and females, right? Um, because the way that I work is that I tend to individualize my program towards the person in front of me and based on the, based on the, the 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 situation and the circumstances that they bring, not whether they are male or female. Um, of course, male, males and females come come with their own different traits and things. Um, but I guess the the overwhelming, not really overwhelming, but um, the 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 thread that I see a lot, that I have seen a lot over the last couple of years, is that um you know women that that statement women are not small men and women um are they've got different set of circumstances and and that low carb um doesn't work for women um and that's i've always kind of scratched scratched my head um when when i've heard that because um i think there might be some women that it doesn't work for um from a hormone blunting perspective but yeah. I've had an incredible amount of success with low carb and women. So um, yeah, so it's what, what I've been hearing, which is not consistent always with, with what I see in practice. And of course, once we talk about the literature, we'll see that um, well, I might leave that as a bit of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so D- Dan, um, Karen brings up an interesting point. It's sort of a trope that's trotted out a lot, which is that women are not just small men. Do, do you have any any comments on that or any ideas about whether that's, you know, true, false, maybe neither? 
Yeah, I think I think it's neither really. There's you know that that there's also small men, right? And it's that idea that everyone is an individual and everybody is different regardless of the gender. And and if you look at any diet, whatever it be, a low carb diet, a high carb diet, a high protein diet, a diet, a carnivore diet, a vegan diet, like so, different people respond in different ways. And it's more, and I would say it's not so much a gender thing than it's more of a individuality, individuality. Um, than, than anything else. Yeah. Well, um, what's your perspective on that, Mickey? Yeah, no, I would just um, echo the sentiments of both Karen and Dan, and it's, and it's, and I often think, well, you know, the people who, you know, who are like women are not small men almost want to group all women in the same boat as well so it's kind of almost been quite myopic this whole individualized approach i suppose um i feel like like i get a lot of people asking me questions around fasted training which isn't necessarily about you know it's not directly low carb but additionally it's low carbohydrate availability when they yeah. train and and you know, I've got women who are too scared to train in a fasted state for fear of the stress response, which is actually a necessary response in order to get some of these endurance adaptations, you know. So it's, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, fear in female athletes to actually do things which would help enhance their, um, their approach. Equally, though, um, low carb is means so many different things depending on that individual you know it could for one person be 30 grams of carbs or below for another it could be 130 grams you know so it's recognizing that it's a that carbohydrate intake works on a spectrum and it is and that spectrum is you know different for means different things for different people that's a great point, and I think that it's it's worth bringing up the um, the, the topic of fasted training, and also perhaps uh, that the aversion that a lot of people have to high intensity interval training or, or high intensity training at all um, because of those same fears. Right, women. There, there's also an almost an absolute that I hear from some practitioners, which is that women should not train fasted. Number one, they should not do high intensity training. Number two, because of this fear of of cortisol. And, you know, obviously cortisol is going to be released in response to a fast, but a transient increase in cortisol is, is not going to really cause any, you know, major problem. It's just a way that we can help to free up fuel or maybe suppress some inflammation. It's going to basically help get us through th those periods. And it seems to me like we're disempowering women by telling them as an absolute they can't do this stuff even though it's often under the guise of empowerment because it's this idea that women are different and should be treated differently in all respects. I'd love to hear um, both Karen and Dan's opinion on that as well, but I'll start with Dan because you're obviously an exercise physiologist, and so you'll have an insight into the, the physiology, physiology of faster training, training and um, high-intensity training for women. Yeah, well, I guess from from the start, you know, I work with a, a lot of like Olympic athletes who are women, and I can tell you that the amount of high intensity training that they do is is high, and and it goes to the, it's the same. It's that any you know too much high intensity interval training is definitely can be damaging, but it's all about that balance, right? And it's um, balancing it with the right training program. So I'll just I'll just say that that from the start, but. Um, 
yeah, in terms of what's happening with with the fasted training is it's just basically it's increasing the the stress response and if you think of training as a very in a very simplest of terms it is a dose response relationship so if you think about the super compensation cycle the bigger the stress the bigger the dip in performance and eventually the bigger the super compensation and the and the performance improvement that we get so what we're trying to do with fasted training is increase the stress response and basically make that training a little bit harder so then we will definitely thereby get a bigger improve, improvement in our training or in our performance. But also, the, if you look at some of the literatures, whether it's low glycogen training, whether it's fasted training, whatever that might be, it does seem to sway towards the fact that um, some of the um, biochemical um, markers of training adaptation so we can actually measure them in the lab we can go into them in some some muscle markers and look at some of those and um, trade those markers of training adaptation are actually greater when we do when we do train in a fasted or low glycogen state rather than a fully um, carbohydrate um, replenished state and i think we need to you know obviously understand that stress is not the enemy it's an excess of stress or sort of a chronic stress that is without a without a conclusion basically yeah well, we well have, if you want to look at the other way stress is the ultimate thing that we're actually if we're talking about from a training standpoint train the stress is actually what we're trying to do we it's if you look think about good training and good training programming it's to get that stress level to the absolute maximum amount that you can possibly you can possibly absorb or hold without becoming overtrained or negatively tied this kind of idea of negative training adaptation so like the stress is actually what we're trying to achieve and the way you can achieve that stress is done through basically training intensity and training distribution and training duration so you know i was actually asked the other day you know someone asked me they said um you know do you think people train too hard and i'm like that that word hard when it comes to trainings you can't just place it on anything like it's hard as you know it'll be hard to bench press 150 kilos but you know it's also hard to run a marathon you know it's it's hard to sprint 100 meters it's there's you can't say the word hard about the context of duration and that's where um, i think people get a little bit mixed up is that you have to the balance is absolutely key and that's where good training programs not in terms of what you do on each day is that distribution of um intensity and volume in every single training session that you're doing but ultimately it is the overall stress that you're trying to get to the right amount so you can cope with it yeah um, that's a really good point and i may be off balance off off base here but i probably have quite a similar approach to, to all three of you actually that i'm more likely to gear training and nutrition to the individual rather than the gender because i see an enormous overlap but between those genders right well on balance we might say that men are perhaps a little bit more resilient to that high intensity training or maybe a little bit more resilient to to fasting just as an example it's not that much and the overlap between individuals is enormous so i might have an extremely resilient female athlete versus someone who you know a, a male who is not that resilient to those things and so really it's almost like the effect between them in terms of the absoluteness of the gender is so small. It, it doesn't really have much of an effect from my point of view for prescription. Would you agree or disagree with that, Karen? Um, I, would, well, I would say just looking to um, what Dan uh, started off with and what you've continued with, um, 
you, you plan a training program to get the best out of the athlete, you, to get the best outcome for, I guess, I guess minimal harm or no harm, but um, you, you want to apply the stress um, but not over-apply it so that there is overtraining syndrome. And I think the same is with nutrition, whether it's male or female, and you can, you can suggest to, to an athlete, try, try this, um, and I'm a big fan of um, start low and, and go slow. Um, so try yeah. small amounts of this. And, and of course, the athlete, um, the typical athlete will go, well, that's great. Therefore, I'll do a whole lot more because that will be better. Um, and yeah. that, that is where you get that kind of, you sort of tip the threshold. So um, I, I think I think there's, there's a threshold with training, but there's also a threshold with nutrition. And it doesn't only come with the amount of fasting and it doesn't only come with the amount of carbs. It comes with the overall um, roundness of the of the of the diet. Like, what are they actually eating, and what are their micronutrient status like? What is their hydration status like? And of course, their personality is is key. You talked about resilience, and um, and I think that really that, that's the word. I know it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. No one really knows what it, what it is. But in my mind. Um, if you've got a resilient athlete, it doesn't matter if they're male, female, black or blue or whatever. Um, if they stick to just below those thresholds that are going to that they're going to harm themselves, then that, then that's the way to do it. But sometimes you have to go over the thresholds to know that you've um, you're not going to go down that road again. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I certainly think there's a threshold there um, for diet and exercise that the athlete needs to um, can i can i just can i just add to that because i think it's a really interesting point is that like you know karen just reminded me that you know we're trying to achieve a stress and basically as, as whether you're a coach or you're a nutritionist you, you're trying to achieve the same thing you're trying you know if we're talking about if we're talking about a sport performance standpoint specifically we're talking about we're trying to get an event you've got a number of tools in your toolbox to elicit a certain stress um, whether that be more or less, and that doesn't mean that you know if you want to if you want to elicit more stress, you can do high intensity interval training. It doesn't mean you're going to do that same thing all, all the time because the real trick is to bring it back when you need it. And you can say the same for diet. Like fasted training could potentially have very specific adaptations that you might be looking for as an athlete. Whether that be you know you're trying to increase your fat oxidation, you're trying to increase certain like mitochondrial um, number for example so you're trying to increase the signal to make that adaptation but there are times when you i mean doing that properly is quite stressful so you can pull that in and pull yeah. out as you as you need to with the specific requirements of the individual because if someone's already got a very high fat oxidation but they're lacking on the vo2 end you might not even need to consider doing you know that sort of training you know the fastest sort of training yeah. but it's like it's about having the tools in your toolbox that you use at the appropriate times and I think both of you have kind of um, got me thinking on a couple of things. So, Dan, if I just, with regards to what you've said, it's that whole idea of periodization within nutrition, right? Because if you're working with an athlete, then you've got the time where you might want to enhance their fat adaptation, but then there are other times where you want to really look after recovery or um, where you need to ensure their immune status is optimal because they're going into a competition or they're traveling for competition or something like that. So those nutrient requirements will change depending on that. And I think, I yeah. feel that as low carb practitioners, if you want to call us that, we're often people think, oh, she does low carb. 
so nothing I ever do is ever about high carb, you know, because they're not yeah. understanding how, how I work as a practitioner. Um, and Karen, you've got a, I mean, your point about the athlete's personality is, uh, that's absolutely key because you'll get those athletes who will absolutely push to the nth degree no matter what you say to them. And so they'll end up broken and they'll they'll say, well, it was because of that low-carb diet I was on, not thinking actually it was because I took that one recommendation and applied it to every single training session in every single scenario. And, and I feel sometimes as well that athletes have to think more broadly beyond just their diet and think about, you know, how am I sleeping? How am I recovering? Um, what is, you know... Am I able? Am I resilient? That word, um, and everything else in everyday life. What's my mood like? And really look at these other qualitative measures too, to and be honest about how they are, how they're tracking. Because oftentimes when they, when an athlete hits on diet and think of thinks of it like a magic bullet, they'll just push on and push on without um, making kind of adjustments if they need to. Sort of related, yeah. but kind of. Uncertain probably for for athletes and maybe medical practitioners as well is they want a template. Um, you know, I've got an athlete. You know, when do I do high carb? When do I do low carb? When do I do periodize this? And it's almost like without giving um, too much away, we kind of um, you know we're all feeling our way in the dark. There isn't really the research to to lead us down that template. So it's it's using your experience and your intuition of the, the whole situation and the whole athlete to go, well, actually, how about let's try this, see how you go with that. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's try something else. Mm. Or that worked, mm. that's great. Do that for a little while, let's try this in this situation. And it's very trial and error. And, and some, some athletes don't like that at all. Um, mm. Or some practitioners don't like that because they want to learn this stuff and they don't realize that they have to kind of figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, one, one thing that comes to mind as you guys are talking about this as well is that often people are talking about absolutes with respect to, particularly for faster training, as to there going to be effects from faster training, increased cortisol, maybe, you know, reductions in performance because you don't have enough glycogen, all that kind of stuff. But we need to consider that, let's face it, most of the people we deal with are not maybe the people that Dan's dealing with, elite level Olympic athletes. Um, they are just gen pop, right? And I consider them athletes because I think anyone who wants to be optimally healthy is going to have to move, right? So to some degree, they're an athlete. But if that means they're going to a CrossFit class three times a week or they're training in the gym four times a week for 45 minutes, what's the real effect going to be on cortisol increase and how long is it going to last from uh, you know a relatively moderate 45-minute gym session? And, you know, is there going to be any real effect in, in glycogen depletion that you can't replete from? Of course there's not. So, you know, or are they fat adapted is another interesting thing. Like how have they developed a capacity to respond to either fasting or low carb? Because we know from the faster study, for example, that low carb athletes don't necessarily have lower carb stores, which mm -hmm. kind of blew people's minds, right? So if you've been through that period of adaptation, are you really going to have the same degree of cortisol increase when you're training in a relatively, um, you know, low duration event? I would suggest probably not. Well, what would I know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the dumb nutritionist. <laughs> it's, um, I'm just, I might just, it's an interesting one with the whole cortisol thing because, you know, I guess it, 
if you look at even ketogenic diets in general, like when you use that word ketogenic, at least, um, you know, cortisol is, is higher, but I think we're all in the idea that you don't necessarily need to be in ketosis continuously. It's more of a cyclical thing anyway. Um, so, and well, it's also uh, limited because, you know, the, even the, the, the research on fasting shows that cortisol, there's no doubt it goes up, but it's, it's limited to about two weeks and then it seems to acclimate pretty quickly. Exactly. And at the same time, you'd also see ketones go down, right? If someone was on, you know, gradually over time, someone's on the same amount of carbohydrates and start off to get a big bump up and then at least the BHB measured in the blood would also go down over time. And I do wonder if there's a kind of a, you know, it's because you like linking it back to that faster study is because you are generally better at preserving the carbohydrates you eat you're you kind of equally equalize yourself and overall your overall stress response is just lower anyway so for a fat adapted athlete who's been in it long term maybe that they do have some better recoverability in terms of what when in terms of high intensity training and training in general i mean from my own experiences as an athlete myself one of the biggest things i've I've found like since changing my diet in 2012 and having success myself since is that my recoverability between higher intensity sessions is, is very good. And, and I can back up session on session on session quite easily. And whereas, you know, even some of the pros that I coach, I, I, I have to be a bit more tender with them than I am with myself, for example, because I, you know, I may not, I don't have time to do the same volume, but I can back up higher intensity sessions time and time again i do think it's because overall after you've had a period of adaptation your overall systemic inflammation is lower you generally recover faster you don't have as much glucose spill out when you're doing any any sort of exercise so for me to have a massive glucose spill i would have to be going very very hard it's you know i'm not talking about i'm really churning into the carbohydrates until a much higher work rate so overall these things are really beneficial and means that you know the one of the most important things of exercise training is consistency and backing day in and day out. Not one training session doesn't make any difference to your overall fitness, but session after session after session after session is a thing that makes the, the difference. And I think that's where you can, you know, that, that might be the overall thing. So actually the hormones are playing in your favor in that, in that particular instance. Yeah. So I, I think we've sort of been talking a lot um, for those people listening in about athletic populations, but I think there's a good reason for that because a lot of this research that the the idea that we need to have a certain amount of carbohydrate, I think, was built on that older research, which showed that if an athlete's carbohydrate intake was too low, then they would have a higher testosterone to free, uh, sorry, a higher cortisol to free testosterone ratio. And so I think that led a lot of people for a long time to think, well, to preserve testosterone, but also to suppress, you know, excessive cortisol, we need to have a certain amount of carbohydrate. But from what I've seen, I'm not sure if, if you guys uh, agree or not here, but there seems to be as much impact from lipid sufficiency as there does from carbohydrate sufficiency, which kind of tells me if we dig into the data, what we typically see is that when athletes are underfueled, they have a problem with hormone balance. Mm -hmm. And that takes care of, you know, 90% of the problem in most respects. Um, so, so given that, why do you think that people are are so keyed in on, on carbohydrate as being this primary dictator of hormone balance. Is there research that points to that specifically, do you think? Or, or do you think it's just become something that's uh, a mainstream idea that people haven't really questioned? 
I just jump in there and say, from my opinion, I think it's uh, it's just come from that classic dogma of carbohydrate being the main energy source for exercise. Time and time again, you, you always hear it. And then you get some people who um, go to the, some athletes who go to the end degree and do you tell them to do one thing and they do a million things and they overtrain and their hormones go out of the window um, and then they go oh well um, you don't work for me as a practitioner so I'll go to someone else and someone else goes no low carb it just you know I see time and time again low carb doesn't work for women and it, and it, it might be just because dare I say it, they're not doing it properly um, or they're doing they're doing something wrong. So I I, I think it's the it, they've got nothing else to pin it on from the carbohydrate because the literature is clearly not there. It's not there. And I've I've been in two presentations where I've heard um, you know 200 grams of carbohydrate is needed um, as a minimum for optimal hormone function. And I remember saying to the person next to me, it might have been you, Mickey. I'm like, mm. where does that come from? And you go, I don't know. And then you, and then I heard on a podcast about um, low low carb not working for women, and 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 the the person who was who was conducting the podcast said, "Oh, really? Can you send me information? Yeah, we've done research. We've done research in our lab to show this. Can you show? Can you send me information? Sure. I got in touch with these people and said, "Can you please send me the studies? Because I've re I really like, I'm not trying to be annoying here. I really want to see this research that I've clearly missed. Not there." So I think the carbohydrate is the is the bad guy to pin it on. I'm like, you know, we 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 pin it on for other things too. So I, was there a reference? Was there a paper published to support that? No. Well, I never okay. got it anyway. No, the two the two hundred grams is something that I hear all the time as well. Yeah. probably it comes from the same place as that when we first got um, into carbs, uh, sorry, into low carb, we'd say you need 130 grams minimum um, every day to keep the brain ticking over. And, you know, as a dietitian, I used to, I used to kind of preach that in my current days. Um, and, of course, when we found out that, that it's not exogenous carbohydrate that we need, um, then we kind of had a, developed a better understanding. And it might, I don't know, it might be a similar thing. There might be a 200 gram carbohydrate requirement, but it might come from you know endogenous um useful carbohydrate availability i don't know and also i think you know um with regards to what you were saying karen with how people approach a low carb dietary approach 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 um is that when you tell a female athlete to drop carbohydrate they'll do it in a heartbeat but if you tell them to up the fat or up the protein they're not very good in that regard you know like like women have been cutting food out of their diets forever and it's actually super simple to do and they just some women struggle to up fat and up protein in their diet so instead it isn't about low carbohydrate it's about what we have talked about in the past it's about that low it's a low calorie diet essentially that that puts them in the state that they're in and in, in my opinion you know so i think that's that's where people get confused and so they pin it on carbs and in fact it's actually low energy availability low calories I agree with it. and you can look at the studies that they've done on low carb diets um on certain population groups like pcos overweight pcos um, individuals 
um, and and in other um, similar situations where uh, the very um, the very effect of a low carbohydrate diet has produced phenomenal outcomes in terms of um, hormone expression, in terms of um, fertility, in terms of um, PCOS, all sorts of things. So, so there's there's, there's good research. Um, yes, there always needs to be better research, but there is reasonably good research to show that low carb can be incredibly beneficial. So, you know, why are we why are we putting carb as the bad guy? Yeah. I think one one of the things that I, well, well they actually the only study that I see referenced um, a lot for this is the study by um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce their names right Lux and Thuma from I think it was yeah. back in 2013 and one of the reasons I think that's so highly touted as being support for this is because it's quite a hard study to read right I'm saying that as someone <laughs> who probably reads a lot of studies around the, the low carb area. And it's a little bit convoluted in the reading. So it appears that you have a, a group who were eating very low carbohydrate. But in fact, they weren't. They were eating a diet that was um, based on insure drinks predominantly. It was around 57% of calories from carbohydrate. Um, so it was relatively high. I think from memory, I may even have a note here, but from memory, it was around 150 odd grams of carbohydrate in the lowest carbohydrate group. Now, the key is that they weren't carb-restricted groups per se. They were drastically energy-restricted groups. So we're looking at that lowest carb group being a function of having a diet that was greater than 700 calories per day below their requirement. And that was the group in which they saw a fairly big effect in, on luteinizing hormone pulsatility. But you didn't see that at the, the higher ends. And so, you know, we would have to say, well, maybe that shows that there's an effect of a relative carbohydrate deficiency, if you will, because their calories were so low, they were supplied with lesser amounts of carbohydrate. But it seems far more consistent with the research to say that it's likely that it's just a drastic energy restriction has, you know, those sorts of problems, because we know they're going to occur with with reds, we know that's going to occur in men as well for drops in testosterone function and things. So it, it seems like it's a bit of a misreading of of really just one study. Then, as you said, Karen, you, you then look at the reviews that have been done on uh, low-carbohydrate diets in relation to hormone balance in women specifically, and you see that across that range of research, we typically actually see improvements in, in menses and improvements in ovulation. We see improvements in fertility. So all of those things tend to improve, especially because a lot of those studies are performed on people with... Um, you know, various problems of insulin resistance like PCOS. So it's certainly not consistent with the research to pull out a study that wasn't even looking at low carb to support the idea that low carb affects luteinizing hormone pulsatility. Have you guys um, looked into that research at all? Um, either the Lux and Thuma study or maybe the Palumbo um, review on low carb and female hormone balance? I've only looked at your summary because you did such a great job um, at summarising it. But, I mean, look, you know, Insure is such a rubbish product. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's it's not nutrition. It's got uh, seed oils and just horrible things in it. Um, so I think if you're going to, if you, if you want to come out and do female hormone research, which is so under-researched, um, gosh, let's just try to do it properly, you know, give them some decent food. Um, 
I can see a really good follow-on study from that one. Uh, you know, low calorie, you know, you have two groups, you have very low calorie, within the low calorie, you have a high carb versus low carb group, and then you can have the higher calorie, same, same thing, and you can tease that out. But I think it's, I think it's kind of, uh, I know everyone pushes their own research, but it, it, I think it's irresponsible to, um, to do a study that's not actually low, low carb um, and, and that's based on um, a, a product that has horrible ingredients and push some outcomes that will scare the world into thinking that low carbs are for females. Well, I don't think it was the authors who concluded that either, just in their sort of defense. I think it's other people who have misinterpreted the study because from my reading of it, it was they were really focused on that energy um, energy availability as being the key, key factor. But again, it's, you know, I, I'm sure you guys have glanced at it. It's at first reading, it seems like it's, looking at low carb but mm. then you look at it a little bit further and think no that's not the, the the case and i think we see that with so many studies what appears to be initially when we actually start to read through them properly and read those methods it's kind of like okay there's actually something a little bit different to what i initially thought here well, well i guess you you know any any study where there is a negative calorie you know negative calorie balance you almost have to just discard it because and this isn't just with females like males are just as just as much danger as being a negative energy balance as, as females and there's you know there's some great studies that um that were, came out a couple of years ago from a danish group that showed that males who are 400 calories in deficit a day you know they have significant reductions in testosterone it has implications on bone density and the whole rest of it so you know like we said from the start it, it's not a male female thing it's a it's an overall thing that yeah there are some problems with hormones but from my from my experience um, work, working with females and and males, it's more the energy deficit. And I have a lot of athletes saying, "Oh, you know, I can't do fasted training. It, you know, it's not very good for me." And that that is one of the main problems with fasted training is that, especially when you're talking about ultra endurance athletes, they'll go out in the morning and they'll go and ride. You know, they'll start at seven and they'll ride for four hours, and by the time they get home, it's you know midday, and it's actually very, then very very hard to get those calories back on board. And that's the main yeah. problem that I see mm -hmm. with fasted training is that you just, it's hard to get that back. And if you think you do that day in, day out, and then that's a recipe for disaster for sure, but it's nothing to do with um, the macronutrient content. It's, and it's everything to do with the negative energy balances that's being put out. I, I agree 100%. And I think that's where there is actually a functional rationale for there being a potential for hormonal imbalance, both from fasting and not just fasted training, but just fasting in general and from a low carb diet. Now it's not because of the fasting and it's not because yeah. of the low carb diet. It's that I think with people who tend to perpetually under eat, and I'm one of those people who will fall into a pattern of under eating. If I'm fasting or if I'm, especially if I'm strict keto, I need to be very aware of how much I'm eating because the tendency would be just to not eat. Yeah, and I, sure. I do see that client sometimes. For sure, and now we just published the paper in the um, Nutrition and Health Journal, and we looked at bioinflammation um, markers. And the main thing that was shown with a low carb diet, and this was a four week study, carbs were less than fifty grams per day. Was serum leptin was elevated, you know, so suppressing mm -hmm. suppressing appetite, and that's why one of the main reasons a low carb diet is so good for people losing weight, right? Is because it makes you feel more satiated. You don't eat as much, and you know, as well, as well as many of the benefits it can give you, I think that's one of the, if you, especially if you're someone who doesn't need to lose weight and your energy expenditure is very high, 
then that's the main main problem and the main thing you have to be aware of. And then you double it in a lot of people's cases with fasted training, then that can be a recipe for, for disaster. And so. sometimes it's it's athletes recognizing it's not a black and white approach. You know, it's not that you either train fasted or you have a heap ton of um, carbohydrate uh, pre-training and then during your training session you know like that's when those train low strategies come in where you might delay you might start fasted and delay feeding mm. or you might um, fuel with fat and or protein prior so they've got calories on board which will change that stress response but it's still not the putting in that glucose and yeah. I think there was that study that came out a few weeks ago that showed that whilst fat oxidation was suppressed they still were able to enhance endurance adaptations at that kind of gene expression level when they took on board protein. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's those studies have been done, and there's a, there's actually a number of studies. Up where I have a PhD student at the moment, um, Jeff Rothschild, who's he's studying that very thing. And in I know that in his literature review, and you would have read the literature review, Mickey, is that it is quite clear that having protein has the same. If you're looking at fat oxidation specifically, it has the same effect same effects of not eating at all so there's really no difference but having carbs definitely suppresses your your overall fat oxidation if that's something that you're actually looking looking to achieve so that i think that's really interesting and you know i have i have an online course that takes people through like a low carbohydrate approach to long distance um, en endurance sports and one of the main things we one of the main questions we always get is like oh i feel really tired when i do my fasted training you know i i, I can't do it very well and, and to, to this point, we don't really know if low glycogen training is worse or better than fasted training. So in, I think at the moment it's pretty much low, low glycogen or no glycogen training is just as good as fasted training from an adaptive standpoint. From what, so it doesn't mean you have to be have to be fasted, but there is this fear of um, fasted training, particularly among females. Um, and I can, I'll, I'll get into that. And yeah, just to go on to, into that space a little bit more, we've actually just had a survey um, done. We just, we we're just in the, in the midst of writing that up. We had 2,000 people and it was all about fasted training and it's why do you fast, fast, do fasted training? And it was literally 50% say they do fasted training because they thought it would give them performance benefit. And then 50% give you said they don't do it because they think it's not going to help their training. So like people really just don't know what the answer is with that kind of thing and um but also it was m much much more likely that males were going to do fasted training and females were not going to do fasted training because of this kind of myth idea that they can't do it which i thought was a real interesting thing so the dogmas the dogmas infiltrations very high mm. i would also and what, what, what do you think the real impact of that is because from my point of view i don't actually think on balance, it's that big a deal. If someone wants to train fasted or not, unless you're doing it for a specific purpose, but for let's say the bulk of your training, especially if you're not at the, the pointy end of performance, I would say that I would always fall back on the default, which is that if someone is eating a, a good nutrient replete diet and they're getting in enough of what they require over the day or over days, then whether they train fasted or they fast in general, whether they carb backload or, you know, practice early time restricted feeding, whatever it happens to be, I think those all pale in significance to just getting in what you require overall. 
Yeah, again, it, the con you know, content before um, context before content, as they as they always say, and it's it's always dependent on what you're actually really trying to achieve. So if someone is specifically doing some kind of ultra endurance event and they're specifically trying to have imp an impact on their fellow oxidation, then I would say that being fasted or low glycogen or something like that and not having carbohydrates available is beneficial. But if that isn't your goal, then I totally agree with you. It, it's not the most important thing because it's not within the context of what you're trying to achieve. And, you know, and then the most important thing is having a balanced diet and having, you know, energy availability and all the rest of it. So. And for most people, I think as well, a, a dietary strategy that allows them to auto-regulate better and so for a lot of people, I think that's that's why fasting works, of course, because mm -hmm. it limits the feeding window. They tend to not overeat. Similarly, that's why, you know, low carb or keto can work well for people, because as you suggested, it's so satiating. They tend to not overeat. So um, to, to speak to one of the questions that's come through, you know, would you suggest having regular intervals of food like every two hours versus maybe one or two big meals? I think it really depends what's going to allow the person to auto-regulate most effectively. And I'd fall on the default of the fewer meals you require to be nutrient replete is probably going to be easier for you to do because there's less choice conundrum and you can actually exercise that human pattern of eating until you're full and then again when you're hungry, which I think is valuable. And I, th I think it works much better as well when people focus on protein. And I think that with all the... And this is what, and I, and I think we're probably all in agreement here, um, just, oh, I'm just assuming we are, um, but we all talk about protein. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's... I'm not going to flex my muscles right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed there wasn't much there, actually. <laughs> Um, and particularly if they're, you know, instead of focusing so much on macros, because we don't think about macro, you know, we don't, we don't think about food in terms of macros or it adds that added complication that people actually don't really need to think about if they've got their diet quality sorted, I think, you know, and so if they start the meal with the base of the protein and they toggle the fat and carbs accordingly, so... And I mean, everyone is different as to how they do it. But when I talk to my clients, I'm like, right, if you kind of set yourself up with a decent amount of protein and then, you know, if the meal is higher in fat, maybe you want to drop those carbs down a bit. Or if, you know, you've got a little bit of additional carbs in there, then, hey, maybe you do want to drop that fat down. And, and you know, it all kind of washes out in the end. And it's not, you know, just because you have like a higher fat kind of um, meal on one day doesn't mean that, you have to be overly concerned with with the fat intake and that met, like it's that whole auto regulation thing right like you generally speaking across the, the course of three or four days if you've sorted it out everything will on balance um kind of work in your favor if you get that if you are able to auto regulate and i think that people just say that you just eat intuitively um without any kind of dietary approach initially that focuses on protein I think that's when people can this is a whole other topic but that's when people can really get into trouble because it, it's really difficult to eat intuitively if you're coming from a high carb approach or you don't really think about protein so much in my experience I reckon we all agree with you Mickey but it's, it's a you know it's one of those one of those things that is that that's another villain that's kind of come out recently is the protein villain now <laughs> 
it's just um you know not only is um fat a villain now protein is a villain so we should only really eat carbohydrates by the sounds of things anyway so but um yeah and, and i guess that comes a lot from the kind of the plant-based movement you know less protein mTOR and all that and um yeah i mean i i think that i think the low-carb diets you know lots of them are suggestive to be low in protein as well but that's mm. particularly with athletes as, as, as you know it's one of the main mistakes that i think is often made is that, that that protein restriction is just a sure way to really make things very difficult for yourself i mean mm. my my um my recommendation is always to not really even think about the amount of protein you're having because it's majorly satiating anyway and it, then you, you it just sorts you out and it goes you into that auto regulation anyway so mm. Well, I just got in a point there about faster training in, in females. Um, it, it could also potentially be um, the case that some females feel psychologically satisfied by having something prior to exercise. Um, so that could be another drive to, to, to want to eat. Like if they don't have a specific goal, as you were saying, Dan, of I, I need to get um, optimal fat adaptations, therefore I'm going to train faster, um, they might feel that, oh, I shouldn't be training faster because, you know, of these reasons. And also I feel like I'm going to potentially run out of energy, therefore I should just have something beforehand. Um, that, that could be, that I've seen that in um, in some people. Um, and just another comment on the whole hormone thing. We've been talking about reproductive hormones, um, but the same exact same argument, um, an exact same argument from a practice and a literature perspective um, applies to to thyroid hormones as well um there's a group of people who say and again particularly females you need you know low carb diets are really bad for thyroid hormone um and in actual fact when you look at the literature low carb diets have been beneficial for um for thyroid and for thyroid function and for um thyroid con related conditions um but some people who tend to overdo it and that is likely the 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 enormous calorie deficit that they shouldn't be doing that mm. might have the impact on the thyroid not the carbohydrates the overall calorie mm. um, and then we get that whole oh we need carbohydrate to convert thyroid hormones okay then well how much how much carbohydrate do we need is there any literature on that no so it's the same, and, same argument and it's another it's another fear mongering for females it's it's low carb fasting um, and reproductive hormones and thyroid hormones, it's, and together it's like a perfect storm of no. And we would suspect that it's unlikely that would be a problem, right? Because we know, and this speaks to Dan's point about protein, that gluconeogenesis is demand-driven, not supply-driven. Mm. And so if we have demand for a certain amount of glucose, and we've got to remember that beta-hydroxybutyrate can supplant glucose in many processes in the body, but that... That notwithstanding, if we have a requirement for glucose, we have a very good capacity to create it. And so for most of our subliminal processes, we would have to assume that that is going to be ample. Now, with the thyroid thing, I think it's really interesting because we probably, I don't know, <clears throat> but this is what uh, Stephen Finney and others have suggested is that it's likely that when we have a higher carbohydrate intake, we simply require more thyroid hormone. That seems to be evidenced by their research, which showed that there was a slight drop in T3, um, but there were no clinical symptoms or signs of, you know, um, hypothyroidism. So we don't see any functional outcome 
And in fact, as you suggest, a lot of people actually get a lot of benefits from a low-carb or keto diet for thyroiditis. Now, that could also be due to a whole bunch of other things because it's going to be uh, an exclusionary diet that could potentially uh, mm. help with some of those factors of um, autoimmune thyroiditis and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty complex. But I think because it's complex, we need to understand that the body regulates itself very effectively when it has repletion of calories and repletion of micronutrients. Where those things aren't, aren't present, then we start to run into trouble. I was just going to say, it's, it's quite, you know, we sit here and have this conversation and we keep circling back to the same thing. And it's quite ama amazing that the, the real take home is that ultimately it's eating the right food into the appropriate amount that is the most important because, you know, the thyroid issue is likely, again, to do with energy availability. And, you know, if you don't have, if you do have those down regulations of certain things and you don't have the capacity to do something about it because you're in a negative energy balance and that's where the, that's where it comes to. And, uh, you know, the thyroid thing was very much popularized by, you know, Ben Greenfield. He did the, he did, um, the low, he was one of the people with the low carb ketogenic diet. And, um, his thyroid was just apparently reportedly was just shot. Um, and everyone, yeah. And, um, everyone always uses that as a, as a quote, but again, you know, you can't, he was probably, he was also training for Ironman at the same time and ketogenic, which, I don't think it's a really good thing to be, you know, to do. I think, you know, what what we what I always suggest is kind of a moderate, more like 130, 150 grams per day, not less than 50, which is, you know, not being shown to be that great for someone who's doing that amount of exercise. So it's like, you know, always the, you know, the the devil is in the detail, as they say. Yeah, and I think as well, like we talk about fasted training and we talk about low carb diets. Like if you do, if you do, if you want to do fasted training and it's that all or nothing approach again, right? And I was just thinking when you were talking, Cliff, that, you know, there's real utility in like training fasted, you know, maybe half the time that you train, you train fasted. And then maybe half the time you go out fed. And similarly, you know, on a few days of the week, maybe on your recovery days where you have less um energy expenditure then you do eat a little less and you just happen to eat less carbohydrate and i think it's morton and and um james morton maybe it was him that coined the fuel for the work required um kind of no oh, it's probably me i probably said that <laughs> the great great cliff. Say, was either great cliff great cliff uh or it was james morton and i think that's you know i think that is key because the, the body responds to that, you know, it it likes that high energy output and high energy intake to, to support it. Equally, though, you, you you know, if you're not doing much, then there's less requirement for calories. So that's recognizing that. Well, you, you, you know, can do a longevity fasting protocol like me and, and exercise at the same time and see how that works out for you. Not very well. <laughs> high energy, low energy input, high energy output. <laughs> it works well for a little while. Two kids in there as well, Dan. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty, pretty hard. But just, just on your point, you know, you, you say that kind of, um, you know, it's all about what the the body needs. In that same survey that I talked about before, the the people who did the least fasted training was elite, um, elite people. And, you know, and the main reason I believe that is the case is because they're basically training so much and, yeah. you know, they just it's just a case that they have to keep on getting food and you just don't want to be going out in the morning when you're probably waking up much more hungry because of the amount of the fuel you've used the day before. And it goes to, it goes to show you fuel for the work required and mm. those guys can need to eat more, whereas 
people who are you know just training eight hours a week can get away with fat more fasted training and being a bit more periodized when when and how how often they eat yeah i think with what both um mickey and you have said dan it, it also points to that what i think we all think we all know to be a truism now that one person's keto is not another person's keto. You know, one person's low carb is not another person's low carb. And it gets to the point where I actually think the the sort of arbitrary delineation between low carb and keto is kind of meaningless because we can have someone who, who needs to be on an extremely low carb diet to achieve this idea of nutritional ketosis. We can have someone who basically just removes obligate carbs or even has some carbohydrate and they're still in ketosis. So what's the differentiator there? Really, it comes down to their metabolic tolerance to, to carbohydrate, insulin sensitivity, those types of things, and how much fuel they're expending, particularly from that more glycolytic activity. So it's not, I, I don't think we can anymore draw those arbitrary thresholds of carbohydrate intake. You must be under 20 grams or you must be under 30 grams or 50 grams or 100 grams because it, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense in the context of an individual. Mm. Agree. Well, I mean, we, we always talk like one of the things that I always talk about is um, we say find your sweet spot, you know, and, it, yeah. and that's what it's about. It's about, you know, I do believe that the everybody should go for a ketogenic period where they're trying to go, you know, make that ad adaptation happen you know, or, you know, quite a harsh period, but then it's about, you're not like that forever. You can come out of it. And then it's all about finding your own individual sweet spot. And, you know, that idea of, of what is ketosis, it's such an interesting question. And Karen and I were part of a systematic review and we were talking, you know, one of the reviewers was like, you know, how do you know you're in keto? You know, this paper can't be included because it went in ketosis. And the, the point was that this, it was a 12 week study and 50 grams, the, the subjects were at 50 grams of carbohydrates every day. So that didn't change. And they started off with BHB, so beta-hydroxybutyrate above 0.5. But as the study went on, carbohydrates stayed exactly the same, the same debt all, all the time. But, key, but ketone levels went down eventually, and they ended up at like 0.2. So I say, well, this isn't a ketogenic study. Well, you're telling me that it was only ketogenic for the first two weeks and not for the rest, even though the diet's not changed? You know, and that's the, you know, it's such a, this magic number of 0.5 and what is ketosis is such a, such a random thing that no one really understands. Yeah, it is. It is random, but it is interesting because I think we've all evolved in our thinking around it as well. Because, mm. you know, like seven years ago, it was absolutely 0.5 millimoles or above you were in ketosis. And then just as we learned more and we read more and we just saw more, we mm. realized, you know, you come to that realization and maybe it's just that everyone that kind of needs to come to that as well. I don't Cliff know. knew that 20 years ago though. <laughs> no, just, <you> know. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the interesting things where having had sort of some relatively long history of, of working with ketogenic diets, I accepted it as the lingua franca. Right. And I thought, I just assumed that someone must have done some research on it. And that's why I asked <laughs> Steve Finney about it. What's that? <laughs> yeah, it was funny when I asked um, Dr. Stephen Finney about it. And he kind of went, well, that's what we kind of thought. It comes, it's the same. It comes, um, the, two mis the, the two random stats of, um, of nutrition is 0.5 ketosis and 200 grams of carbohydrates of females. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> it was interesting because um, several years ago I examined a PhD thesis and um, 
And, and this person used the threshold of nutritional ketosis as 0.1. And I was like, what? Like, everyone knows it's 0.5. Where did it 0.1 from? And he, um, or they, I mean, they referenced a, 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 an animal study, a rat study. And then during the, during the Viva, we had a conversation about this. And he, he said, I, I looked at every single piece of literature out there and I traced it back to an, an, an animal study and that was the best piece of literature that could support it. So of course, all of his results were were like magnanimous because they were all over 0 0.1. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, he couldn't fault it, right? Because, the, because yeah. the actual threshold was, you know, thanks to Steve Finney, you kind of made it up. Um, mm, <laughs> and now it's going even less. But there is research that differentiates between, you know, different magnitudes of carbohydrate restriction now, thankfully, because we did it, Karen, um, and, and looks at the, the magnitude of beta-hydroxybutyrate increase, increase and things like that. And we, I think we would now know fairly conclusively that you can eat as much carbohydrate as you want, and you're probably going to be around 0 0.1, 0 0.2, irrespective of everything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to actually bring it back as well and make a comment on something you said earlier karen because i think it's really important the the sort of psycho psychological psychosocial psychoemotional aspects of why we eat because one thing that i see a lot particularly with either fasting or fasted training is that some people are trying to go against what their neuropsychophysiology is telling them what i mean by that is you might have people who you know, feel a lot better eating before training for whatever reason. And if they're still getting results, I would say, well, that, that's great. Keep doing it. On the other hand, I also see people who have been told to eat, for example, 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrate before training so that they can beat the cortisol dragon. And they don't want to eat before training. They hate it. They feel sick while they're training. They would much rather be fasted, but they've been told this, this law. And so I think the how we feel around food is critically important because if those things don't matter that much in the context of a day or days, by trying to override them with willpower in comparison to the things that actually matter, we're probably not going to last. And we really need to be aware of that for adherence sake as, as practitioners because that's our most difficult challenge, I think. I, I agree. I mean, I, I do think and you guys work with um, the level of eliteness that you work with is probably different to the level that I tend to um, work predominantly with. And I think the elite athlete is, is more open to uh, telling me what to do and I'll do it and I'll suck it up. Um, whereas the more of the recreational athlete is a little bit more married to food and, and the psychology around food. Um, and I'm not quite sure how how we deal with that in an elite elite sense, because you, you, you're going for more of a proof of concept where where the athletes will do anything. Um, so I think I, I think in, in my world, the, the athletes that I work with, it's a little bit easier because I can get them to rely or try and tap into their intuition a little bit more. But maybe the elite of the elite don't necessarily have that. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you guys can jump in there. I think there's a finer line. And, you know, I think with with the average sort of 
I don't like to say average, but with our, our gen pop people that I work with who just want to, to, to thrive in life, I think they can, they, they really can auto-regulate. I, I think sometimes athletes can't auto-regulate as well because the demands of their training are, you know, super normal. And so they need to be that much finer with what they're doing. And, and then it comes down to, you know, a, a bit of a finer balance of finding what works for the individual, but also I really think it's important to look outside dietary dogma and look at outcomes-based nutrition. You know, I talk about this a lot with Eric Helms. I think it's pretty easy reading from the research to see where low carb is best suited and maybe where it's not. And so, for example, if I have a client who wants to put on as much muscle as they possibly can, I'll probably just say eat some carbs, dude. And it's probably going to be a dude because a lot of women don't want to do that. But if it is, it's going to be the same thing. I'm still going to call their dude. <laughs> eat some carbs, dude. And you'll often, but you'll often see that the dogma against that is you'll be sitting on a low carb forum and someone will be saying, I can't put on any muscle. What should I do? And everyone's saying, fat bombs, do this, do that. And I often jump on and say, eat some carbs. And then everyone's like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, why, why on earth would you eat carbohydrate? But, you know, it, it, it's, there's going to be individual variability there. And a lot of it's determined by obviously where the person is now, but we forget that it's also determined by where they want to be. Mm. And yeah, and to that point, like you know, working having having had a little bit more experience now working at the Americas Cup with people who want to put on muscle, like people who want to put on muscle cannot eat to their auto regulation. Mm. You know, that's a prime no. example that you need to stuff your face beyond belief to get, to get that right. And you're not going to do that with um, fat and protein because you'll want to be very sick. And also, obviously, the insulin is a massive thing that actually is beneficial for muscle growth as well. So, and um, but, there's genetic variation there too, right? There will be some guys who just will not be able to gain muscle. Like, mm, yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm just doing that whole weight gain, weight loss thing. And I know the low carb community are totally um, anti. It's all about calorie intake and energy intake. But man, you know, you can't. Really you can't really argue against it. And, and if you look at something totally different, which is the National Weight Control Registry um, in, in the US. So this is a, is a national database of people who have lost 10% uh, of their body weight uh, and have kept it off for uh, more than a year. They can then go into the database and, um, you know, put all, in all their demographics and they do research on them. Well, the reality is, is that for all the people that qualify, which is a loss of a certain amount of body weight and put it off for one year, they do it very differently. So about 45% of them do low carb, about 55% of them do high carb. And within that, some of them do shakes and some of them do food and some of them do fasting and some of them jump up and down. And it's, you, yeah. you can't actually, I mean, you can say one is better than the other when you've got something like type 2 diabetes and conditions of insulin resistance. You can say, you can lose weight anyway, but I would recommend that you do it with low carb because you'll, you know, the the, um, the the benefits to insulin resistance and other things are going to be superior. But it's, it's kind of a similar thing for weight gain. If there is, if, if, if the protein is adequate to allow muscle gain um or extra muscle gain then just put the calories in from wherever you wherever it makes sense for you if it's extra protein extra carb extra fat or a combination of three you know it's what you can yeah. move and keep doing i agree i think you know if we look at it just you know in an objective sense we would probably say that on balance people gain muscle more effectively with more carbohydrate in the diet 
they lose fat more effectively with less carbohydrate in the diet, but the effect size between them is actually pretty small if we correct for protein and calories. So overall, what's going to be best, and I know I'm sounding here like every other moderate nutritionist on the planet. I never thought I'd be a moderate nutritionist, but it comes down to what people can stick to, right? If they can stick to it and it's going to give them results, the effect size over time can actually be pretty pretty minimal. Yeah, and that's what the studies don't look at. And obviously for good reason, you can't do a lifelong study to see what people do and, and keep, keep sticking to. But the studies are typically proof of concept studies. So... I mean, even, yeah. even even most people, um, you know, all the studies that we've been involved with, most people can't stick to doing something for 12 weeks, let alone, you know, your whole life. So it, it does it does make you think about the research and the practice quite differently. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to finish off with one small thing, which is tangential to hormone balance, mainly because Dan brought it up. I think... The, the reason I want to end on this, Dan, is because it shows the complexity of the topic we're grappling with, right? Because diet's complex, how it interacts with the human body is complex, and how we, we actually dig data out of studies can be pretty complex as well. Now, you were sent through a, a fairly recent study um, on the purported negative effects of a ketogenic diet on bone health. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a super interesting one because it's, yeah, go on. Yep. Did, did you want to preface anything about that oh, or should I, I just get I mean, my, I was saying that because I was interested in it and, um, you know, looking at that study, calories, energy expenditure is the same between the groups, um, yeah. which is which is interesting. Um, but, yeah, there were – I mean, I don't really understand that the, the markers that they measured in terms of bone health, but it did show that that lower carbohydrate availability did seem to affect – the overall bone health and you know i have had some um athletes who i've worked with who have had who, you know who've gone low carb diet they've they have got stress fractures but whether that is a result of training or is a result of them doing them both at the same time i am i have no idea i myself before in 2018 got a stress fracture in my in my sacrum you know it, I just it just tweaked my interest. It was uh, it was of interest, and I was, and then I wanted to get your opinion of it. And I guess I mean from my perspective, I in, I think um, that study the carbs are very low. If you looked at it, less than yeah. thirty five grams per day, which is probably you know, and if you think about how that would have and it, over a short term, you know, it would affect your cortisol. Maybe that's having some sort of stress response that's. You know, and then who who knows what the um, overall effect is? But I just well, yeah. So let's um, let's talk about it. Yeah, I think you make a a really good point about that because again, I would I would wonder if that's actually a practically applied ketogenic diet for an athlete because every athlete that I've ever worked with is going to be having more than thirty grams of carbohydrate. So we'd have we'd have to wonder if that's actually a true indication of what happens. Yeah. To, to speak to your point, though, I think it's really important when we see things like this that there needs to be functional outcome research resulting from this. So, you know, what is the prevalence of stress fracture, for example, in people following low carb versus in people following high carb? That would give us probably some good in vivo and situ outcome evidence. Yeah, I mean, but let's in terms just interrupt there. I mean, that's that's the, the point is that we can. Like, like you said from the very start of this conversation, you you know, people pinpoint things, but like athletes get stress fractures all the time and nobody out there is saying 
you're getting stressed perhaps because you're on a high carbohydrate diet. No one's saying that, but if a you know if a number of times if a low carb athlete gets stress fractures because they're on a low carb diet, mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like it's a it's a it's a funny old it's a funny world we live in. But um, but as, as you, to your point, like thirty five grams is very is very low for for an athlete as well. So maybe it, you know it doesn't have that um, practical significance. Yeah. Well, I mean, I. I, I... I'm not an expert in, in bone health, so the bone markers as well to me are things that I know a little about, but I'm certainly not an expert. But there were a few things that did pop up when I read through the study when it came out a little while back. I think you posted it, Mickey, and I had some interesting thoughts, what I thought were interesting thoughts about it. Number one, that CTX, which was, um, you know, seemed to be adversely affected, is really a measure of bone turnover, but it's not necessarily a good marker for bone mineral density. Mm-hmm. So we would suspect that that would point to there being a reduction in bone mineral density over time if that continues to occur, but we wouldn't necessarily know. The other interesting thing is the P1P is kind of equivocal because that may well be associated with an inverse association, sorry, there may be an inverse association between P1P and bone mineral density. So P1P was reduced in the low carb group. So we couldn't necessarily say that by by association that's going to net, mean there's going to be lower bone mineral density or, or reduced calcification of, of bones. The, the, the kicker, though, really is the osteocalcin because that's probably the, the key marker, right, for bone mineral density. We see a pretty strong association between osteocalcin and um, bone mineral density in osteoporosis studies, and that was fairly markedly reduced, and it seemed to be the most sort of significant result there. So that would certainly say, from that, we would certainly say that, well, there needs to be further research here because there are enough indications coming from this. But some interesting things came up for me with that because we we certainly know that osteocalcin is vitamin K dependent. Um, Vitamin K, interestingly, was left out of the nutritional analysis, but the authors did say that the low-carb group, the keto group, were less micronutrient replete than the higher-carb group which would make sense, particularly with respect to vitamin K, because if you're not taking in the same vegetable matter to try and keep a very arbitrarily low carb amount, it it may well be that you're not getting in enough vitamin K. Given that vitamin K is a pretty key trigger for osteocalcium um, release, that's a pretty important factor. And there's also a pretty interesting interplay uh, between insulin and osteocalcin. So we would suspect that with a a marked reduction in, in insulin response in a ketogenic group, there will be some interplay with osteocalcium levels and whether that, and with glucose as well. And so whether that is sustained, we just wouldn't know. So I think it's a super interesting study, but there's enough questions that we certainly need to look a bit deeper into it. And I would certainly be looking at the, um, you know, further research in osteocalcin as it as it is compared to insulin and glucose and low carb populations, whether there were micronutrient um issues with that. And then obviously just taking a, a step back and looking at the functional outcomes of whether we actually see an increase in bone-related problems in people following uh, lower carb diets. Mm. Because the long-term the long term view is the absolute key, right? Mm. The, um, Absolutely. That's, that's because all those, all those <laughs> markers, you don't, without the, because um, things can change so rapidly before they counter it, right? It's just the stress response same thing that we always see with everything, whether it be training or any kind of nutrition intervention, the long-term approach is absolutely critical. You know, it's the same why we don't like three-week ketogenic diet studies, right? 
Exactly. And, and it's, as we all know, it's difficult to actually see sometimes because we can't, t- we can't just take a, a, a random sample of the population and assign them to carbohydrate quartiles or quintiles because you're not, you're simply not going to get enough people who are following a low carb diet. You know, all of the research, which shows that low carb increases mortality, they're not eating a low carb diet. And if you go into the data anyway, they're just eating a shit diet mm-hmm. at either end, you know, where, where mortality's affected. It's because they're either in the, you know, uh, the, the Coke and lollies brigade at the high end of carbon take, or they're at the pizzas and burger end of the spectrum, which is leading to have a relatively lower carbon take. So very difficult to do because we, we don't actually have enough sample population over the long term to properly evaluate observationally what happens with low carb diets. Mm. I mean, that, that's why the fastest study by, you know, that the fastest study by Foley and Vineyards is, is one of the, such a good study, right? It's such a powerful study because that's possibly the only one that's really looked at these. It's not really a long-term study, but it is looking at people who have been doing something long-term. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, well, and and with those types of studies, it would be very interesting to, you know, even with that, you would expect there to be temporal changes over, you know, one to three years in bone mineral density from these effects if they're actually occurring. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I just want to add a comment in there. I didn't actually, I haven't actually read this, the study, um, but I, I think that there's a lot more to be, that we need to know about micronutrients. I think, you know, we live by the RDIs, recommended daily intakes, and they just, the whole system is so flawed. There are no specific RDIs for athletes, um, only iron. Yeah. Um, and in and the RDIs are just semi-random values that have been um, established in a paradigm of um, high-carb, moderate-protein, low-fat. Um, and I think when you switch that round, you know, you, your whole metabolism gets reorchestrated, and um, there's an upregulation of some of the vitamins and maybe a, and minerals, and a downregulation of others. And we know nothing about that. So I think it, again, it's very unfair to point the finger at low carb for for bone health. Um, we need to know a lot more about micronutrients in both situations: general micronutrients for athletes, and high carb situations, and low carb situations. There's think there's very, very little known, and very few studies have been done. Um, and in fact, some of the studies that have been done um, have shown a discrepancy between um, the actual amount that people are eating the RDI and the serum values as well. So there's a disconnect there. So there's a double disconnect in the area of micronutrients. Yeah. So that's that's a really yeah. that's a very interesting area that needs to we need to do some studies on micronutrients, guys. Mm. We do. Post-op. Well, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully we can do some of those studies in the coming years. I think we've probably got a lot of ideas for things we can look at just from this conversation alone, but there's a lot of others um, out there that we've discussed. Um, We just need to get on and do it. But thanks all of you for being on today. I know you're very busy people, even amongst these pandemic lockdown conditions. Uh, Is there anything you want to leave any of the listeners with? And even if not, um, let us know where they can find all about you. One thing we didn't discuss is electrolytes, <laughs> which we do not have time to get. It would be like an entirely 
other hour that we could spend talking about it, but oftentimes the problems with low carb may well be in fact just low electrolytes. And I just saw the comment from Jints, I'm sorry if that's not correct, um, on your situation. And the first thing that I think about is um, electrolyte um, availability in your approach with your training. And, and so, but again, that's a whole other um, uh, topic to consider because of course our requirements may increase on a low carb approach um, and we may not be able to hold on to electrolytes and stuff the way we can on a higher carb approach. That's an interesting point that speaks to the, the, the larger topic of energy availability though mm -hmm. because obviously we know that for example with the purported keto flu I think we know that absolutely electrolytes help because they are one of those key factors that is altered in the first few days of a low carb diet, although we do acclimate very quickly. But again, you know, what we saw in our research was that the biggest factor in keto flu symptoms was actually not the magnitude of carb restriction. It was how much people had restricted energy. Mm. So although all those other things are important, like beta-hydroxybutyrate, whether you're producing ketones effectively, whether you're having enough water and electrolytes, they're critically important. But bigger than all of that is actually energy availability, probably. Mm. And I also think that the sodium side is only really prevalent in the first, I don't think it's a long-term thing. I think it's just pre more prevalent in that those first I adaptation. Agree. I just, I don't know whether you actually need more sodium as on a low-carb diet generally overall i mean certainly i mean it's yet yet to be seen really i mean i i think sodium is an overly pumped up thing generally anyway in the in the sports nutrition industry um yeah. i agree we could have another topic on this <laughs> we could because I, I we'll get you all back for the sodium round yeah. table yeah sodium want to be a good one i'm just yeah because i'm just writing a i'm just writing the, like a heat course for Enjoy IQ. So I'm well, I've done a lot of research in sodium recently, so I'm pretty versed in the area. <laughs> and you, you've actually done research, primary research in sodium as well, right? Electrolytes no, not and prim hydration. Not primary myself, no, no. Okay. I thought you'd done everything. No, Dan. sorry. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> people just people ask me a topic and I say, oh, Dan's probably researched that. <laughs> it's funny I do the same to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe keto, that's about it. Um, so where can people find you, Dan? You, you mentioned Enduro IQ. Yeah, I mean, um, Enduro IQ is the company where we do online courses primarily for long-distance triath triathletes, and we have courses on low-carb performance training. I'm currently building one in the heat, and Mickey is an instructor on our low-carb one, for, and we have a specific female, um, which is topical for today, specific female module. But, yeah, um, guests on um, Instagram, The Plues, Twitter, normal things. Hey. So cool. And we'll we'll put all those links in the show notes as well. Mickey, where can everyone find you? Oh, um primarily Facebook under Mickey Willardin PhD or Instagram Mickey Willardin, same at Twitter actually, and my website, MickeyWillardin.com. Awesome. Yeah. And Dr. Karen Zinn. Where can our wonderful listeners find information about well, you and well, what you do? Well, everyone will know not to look on Instagram because I've never <laughs> heard that I'm not on Instagram, but you might search a bit closely if you want to see uh, my dog. Um, but aside from that, I'm on uh, Old School Facebook, Karen's and Dietitian, 
and on Twitter, Karen Zinn, I think, <laughs> and again, website, karenzinn.com. So um, pretty, look, it's, it's easy to be found these days. Uh, so, it is. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. It's been a, an interesting discussion. I'm sure we'll all get together and do this again, but I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Cliff. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cliff. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To support the podcast and receive member-only benefits along with free articles, go to cliffharvey.com. Subscribe to the podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.